Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Approximately 20% of the people who are motionless and locked into a deep coma, wholly unable to move or respond, have a conscious awareness. This conscious awareness may be determined with the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging, commonly called fMRI. This imaging reveals the increased blood flow to specific areas of the brain when a person focuses on a certain idea or image. In this program, we visit with Adrian Owen, Ph.D., author of Into the Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. Dr. Owen, who thoroughly enjoys neurobiology and his rock and roll band, began to develop imaging techniques allowing a conscious person locked in a coma to respond yes or no to a given question. Owen is currently the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the Brain and Mind Institute of Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. As part of our continuing series on dementia, we visited with Dr. Owen from his office in London, Ontario, Canada on June 28, 2017. We began when I asked him to explain the difference between magnetic resonance imaging and functional magnetic resonance imaging. They're both actually very similar. Uh, an MRI scanner, uh, the MRI has been around for about 40 years or so now. Uh, and in the early uh, years, it was principally just used as a, a way of taking photographs of the brain. In that, in that way, it's very similar to a, a CAT scan or, or a CT scan that people will be familiar with. So what you get is a sort of a photograph, a static image of the brain. And um, in the early 1990s, uh, uh, the, the technique was developed uh, so that it could perform so-called functional MRI. And what this is, it's like, it's like a movie. It's, it's, the, it's the activity of the brain. You can see the brain doing its thing over time. So it, uh, typically a scan will last anything from a few minutes to some, sometimes a few hours. And we scan the brain. And what we're, what we're measuring are changes in the flow of blood around the brain because that corresponds to where all the action is happening. If you're thinking a particular type of thought and it's activating a particular area of your brain, then we can detect that in the fMRI scanner. So what you distinguish when you ask people to think of two particular categories, one um, playing tennis and the other walking through their home, initiates thinking in separate parts of the brain. Can you explain the separateness of those two forms of thinking? I can, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that, you know, fMRI or, you know, this, the technology behind it was at the stage where I could just put you in the, into the scanner and, 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 and work out what you were thinking. But we're not quite there yet. Uh, I can't even put you in the scanner and work out whether you're thinking a yes and a no. I mean, that's, that's a very, you know, sophisticated question. It's one that we haven't cracked yet. But there are some things that you could do in the scanner or some things that you could imagine that I can detect. So, for example, if I ask you to imagine moving your arms around, as if, say, you were playing a game of tennis, 
it will produce activity in a particular area uh, at the top and towards the front of the brain, known as the, the premotor cortex. And this happens every time. Uh, every time I said to you, imagine playing tennis, this area of the brain will light up. And if I say, now stop, the activity will disappear. And it's to do with, it's an area that's involved in um, producing those sorts of, uh, of movements. Now, what I can then do is use that as a sort of a proxy for a word like no or yes. I could say to you, I'm going to ask you a question. And if the answer is yes, imagine playing tennis now. If that area of the brain lights up, then we know the person is saying yes. Now, another scenario we use a lot is to ask people to imagine that they're walking around their houses. Um, so we have, you know, we have a very sophisticated system in our brains for, uh, for for us to know where we are. Imagine, you know, you walk through your front door. Imagine you're, you know, you're trying to you're trying to go to the bedroom. You don't sort of just wander around the house until you get there. You go exactly there because you have a very sophisticated spatial map of your house that's developed over time, and all that information is stored in your brain. And you can imagine that information as well. You don't, you don't just need to actually um, activate it when you're in your house. You can imagine being in your house. And when people do that, um, we see an entirely different network of areas light up. And what we can do is we can get people to do that to convey a no. So typically with the patients, once we've established that there's some awareness there, we'll say, well, imagine playing tennis for a yes. Imagine walking around your house for a no. Now, here's a question. We ask them the question, as long as it's got a yes and no answer, typically they convey, they can convey that answer very effectively. What would be a typical question? Well, in the early days, so this is now, uh, we've been doing this for seven years, but early on, um, A, we were as surprised as anybody else that this actually worked. Uh, but B, we, you know, we really needed to make sure that it was reliable and robust and, and, and replicable. You know, these are, these are high-stakes situations. We're dealing with patients who, for whom decisions are being made about, about life and death. So early on, we asked questions that we could go and verify later. So there would be things like, do you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, and we'd take down the answer, yes or no, and then we'd go to the family and we'd say, okay, he says, yes, he has brothers or no, he has sisters. Is your mother still alive? These are sort of concrete questions in the outside world that we can go and verify that this person is truly in there communicating with us. Uh, but they're not questions that we, you know, as, as carers and investigators typically know the answers to. If a patient comes to me, I don't typically know whether their mother is still alive or not. So, you know, that made it completely unbiased. And that's how we, that's how we verified the science to, to make it absolutely clear to everybody that this is a real thing and we really were communicating. But then, of course, you can move on to ask questions that you don't know the answers to. Things like, are you in pain? Um, there's no such thing as a pain meter. I can't put something on you right now and tell you how much pain you're in. The only way I know whether you are in any pain is if you tell me and if you estimate the amount of pain that you're in. And it's the same for these patients. So uh, it's something that we ask many, many people now. Are you in pain? And can you ask them a leading question? Is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 above 5? Yes, that's exactly what we've done, um, and that's 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 what we've written about recently. Because obviously, people listening to this are probably thinking, "Well, how how far can you get just answering yes and no questions?" And the answer is, you you know, you really have to do it like that old party game, twenty questions we would call it in, in the UK, where uh, you have to ask a, a rather broad question like, "Are you in pain?" Uh, if the person were to say yes, then you would say, "Well, you know, it, it, is it physical pain?" 
uh, and they might say yes. It's okay. Is it in the top half of your body? And they might say yes. And you gradually have to, the only way that you can do this is to gradually drill down through the questions uh, until you find out what you really want to know that this person has immense pain in their right foot, for example. So the other um, important area, I think, is trying to improve patients' quality of lives with respect to the experiences they have or, or what they get exposed to. And it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fact that um, if you are unfortunate enough to get yourself into one of these, uh, these rather serious gray zone situations, then you're going to get to experience an awful lot uh, of what you used to enjoy. If you used to watch a lot of basketball, uh, then you're going to get sat up in front of an awful lot of basketball games um, when you know there's nothing else for you to do. Uh, if you used to like listening to heavy metal music, you're going to get to listen to a lot of heavy, heavy metal music. The problem is... Um, you know, sometimes these patients stay in this situation for many, many years, for decades even. And, you know, maybe two decades later, you're not still into heavy metal music, but it's almost as though time ceases to, to, to change. Time, 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 time stands still, you know, for these patients. So the other area that we work, we're working in a lot now is to ask questions about what patients would like to happen to them, what they would like to, uh, how they would like to spend their days, how they would, what time they would like to go to bed, um, these sorts of things. Because of the patients who have recovered, and there are a few examples of this in the book, of patients who've come back from the grey zone and, and live to tell their tale. And many of those patients report immense frustration with having no control over their lives. Every single decision was made for them. And, uh, you know, and being able to return some of that decision-making about even simple things like, you know, what music am I going to listen to today? I think could, could seriously improve somebody's quality of life. Have you yet been able to develop a situation where someone can express an idea to you or the other scientists with whom you work other than in a yes or a no answer? That's a really great question, and it's one uh, that we're working really hard on. Uh, I'm sad to say the answer is no. Uh, at the moment, we're stuck with yes and no questions. But uh, we, we have some techniques that, are, that work in healthy participants. Uh, and obviously, we, we rely a lot on volunteers, students, and people from the community that come in and help us with our research. And we do have techniques that allow people to spell, for example. And this, is a, this will be a huge step, step forward. If somebody could spell out a word or a sentence with their brain, I think that would make a huge difference. Um, and, and that is possible in the healthy brain. Um, it's something that we, and I, I don't believe anybody else, has managed to pull off with one of these patients in the in the gray zone state uh, yet but but I certainly I certainly believe it's going to happen in the near future well doing that you would rely on the knowledge of that the person has gained or laid down in their mind after the incident that otherwise causes them to be um, in a vegetative state so can you tell us the circumstances, if, if possible, about how people are able to lay down knowledge after the fact of the, the incident? Uh, well, uh, let me give you another example of a patient I, 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 you know, I described in, in some detail uh, in the book. Um, this was a, a young man from here in Canada who came to us after a so-called anoxic brain injury, and that is that he'd suffered prolonged loss of oxygen to his brain. He seemed to be in a complete vegetative state. He was entirely non-responsive and had, had been that way for many months. And 
we put him into the scanner and we saw nothing going on in his brain. We tried a bunch of new techniques that we'd been developing. And again, we saw absolutely nothing. And I, I, you know, I sent him home with his parents and I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I can't find any evidence that your son has any awareness of the outside world. Nine months later, he walked back into my lab. Uh, he had recovered. Um, he, he walked through the door. He uh, um, he, he had an, you know, he could talk. Um, you know, he was going back to, to college. Uh, that was remarkable in itself. We don't see that very often. Uh, what was even more remarkable, in fact, what stunned me, is that he um, could remember everything about being scanned nine months earlier. He could report every last detail of going into the scanner, um, the name of the person who had scanned him, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 who it was who scanned him, where it was, every last detail of, of what had happened to him during those four days um, here in my lab, he was able to report. So clearly, he'd, he'd been laying down memories. He'd been laying down extremely effective memories of uh, what was going on around him, um, uh, who was who was around him, what they were saying. Um, now, how this happened, we don't know. How he was able to do this, it's, 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 it still amazes me. It's still extraordinary, but he was. And I think only by exploring these gray zone states with the sorts of technology that we have available to us will we ever be able to you know, understand how these things can actually occur. In your experience of the 20% of the people who are in a vegetative state are able to communicate using the yes or no responses that you have mentioned. How many of those do you find are able to lay down post-incident memories? Actually, almost all of them. I would say that um, typically, at least, uh, at least here, um, these patients either can't do anything or they can do almost everything. So most of the patients that I describe in the book are really sort of locked inside themselves. They, um, they, they you know, they appear to be entirely non-responsive uh, and entirely unable to, um, you know, produce any, any, any responses. They appear to be unaware. But in fact, once we get them into the scanner, once we start asking them questions, it becomes apparent not only that they are aware, they know who they are and where they are, but also um, to address your question more directly, they're laying down memories and they've experienced the last year, 10 years, 20 years of their lives, much the same way that you and I would experience our lives, except, of course, they weren't able to, to, to move around and interact with their environment. So most of those patients are certainly still laying down memories. However, um, there's another class of very similar patients who we refer to as being in the minimally conscious state. Uh, and this is a condition that's very much like the vegetative state. Um, uh, but pat patients are typically able to give some indication that they have some level of awareness. And I, th and I think for them, the situation is, is much more difficult. I think it's much less clear that those patients are actually... Um, laying down new memories. It's not clear that they're completely aware of, of, of where they are and who they are and, and the condition they're in. And that's an enormous population that, that, that we're talking about. Uh, let's talk about uh, another and separate area, and that's ethics. In uh, my other profession as an attorney here in California, doing a lot of estate planning, I ask people to fill out a uh, health care directive. One of the questions is, if you were in a vegetative state, how long would you like to be kept alive? With what you have been able to discover, you are in a position to ask people, do you want to die or would you like to be kept alive? How do you deal with the ethics involved? 
I think that's an e- e- enormously difficult question. It's, I'm, very, I'm very glad that you asked it. Now, we, we, we clearly are moving uh, into a situation where some of these techniques can be used to ask patients uh, what you know, what they would like to happen to them, and I think this is an enormously you know important area. One of the things that really drives this research is trying to return some of the decision making to to the patient themselves. I've seen many many examples where families are making. Uh, decisions on behalf of the patient. And they could be relatively straightforward decisions like, you know, do we want to enter our loved one into this particular new drug trial? Or they could be really difficult decisions like, you know, do we really want this person to carry on in the situation that they're in? And it's, it is a nightmare scenario. Nobody wants to have to make those sorts of decisions on behalf of somebody else. And one of the things behind this research is, is you know, can we return some of that decision-making capacity uh, or ability to the patient themselves? I can tell you that in some cases, yes, we can, and yes, yes, we will be able to. It's a, it's a minority of cases, but it's, it's certainly, um, you know, it's certainly plausible. Our guest is Dr. Adrian Owen, author of Into the Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Adrian, let's discuss the ethics of asking a person in the condition which you have described, would you like to die? You know, this is exactly one of the issues that I, I, I talk about in the book because it's, it's extremely important. If you were, I mean, if somebody were to just you know, walk into a, a doctor's surgery and say, you know, I want to die today, we typically don't just say, fine, here you go, take this pill and, and you can die if it's, a, it's an otherwise healthy person. Um, and, you know, there are good reasons for that. The person may, uh, you know, this may be a transient phase they're going through. They may have just had a piece of really bad news that they'll get over in a, a few days. And, you know, and we have a, a process in place and a, a very good sort of ethical framework for how we deal with those sorts of situations. And I, I don't think the situation is any different for a patient who is um, in one of these gray zone states where they appear to be unaware, but actually it, it turns out that, that they aren't. And, and by that, I mean, you know, if one of these patients says, I want to die, please turn me off, we're not going to be able to just act on that without really thinking through the, the repercussions. Is this a transient phase? Is this person perhaps depressed? I mean, they might have very good reasons to be depressed. Uh, do they have what we often refer to as mental capacity? Are they able to understand the implications of the decisions that they're making and the, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the answer to the questions that they're giving? And you would, if you were ever going to act on that sort of information, you'd have to work through all of those questions in exactly the same way that you would with the, the example I've just used of the person who walks into the doctor's surgery and says, I want to die. It's, it's the same situation. You'd have to establish it. And, you know, it's questionable how you would go about doing that in a patient who can only ask yes or no questions. But I, I actually think it's doable. It would be extremely labor intensive, but I, I think it's something that could be done. By labor intensive, you mean in posing the questions and uh, submitting them or asking them to the patient who then answers with the yes or no imagery that you have discussed earlier uh, today. Exactly. So at the moment, each of those questions uh, takes about five minutes for us to be absolutely confident that we've got the right answer. Uh, you know, we can go faster sometimes, but, but most of the time, you know, I like to leave it five minutes of scanning. So every yes and no question takes five minutes. Um, they've got to go into 
into the scanner itself. This is expensive and non-portable technology. The person is lying. Um, they typically can't stay there for many hours. Uh, you know, we, we can only keep people comfortable for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. So the number of questions that you can ask in any session is, is, is limited both by the time it takes and the comfort of the patient. It truly begs the question of who is in charge, the patient, uh, the medical staff who act as, uh, uh, as the questioners, or the surrogates of the family who would decide for a person who has no ability to move or respond but is clear in their cognitive abilities. For me, the, the, the duty we have, and now that we know that these people exist, um, the duty that we have is, is to give them as much freedom as we can. I mean, we're, you know, we're not in a position where we can offer them a cure. We're not in a position where we can pull them out of this situation, but we should allow them wherever possible to, um, you know, to be able to exert some autonomy, as we call it, some control uh, over their lives. Because as I said previously, at the moment, almost every decision is, is made for them. So let's move then to Alzheimer's disease, the cognitive debilitating neurodegenerative condition that some people have. Other, they're otherwise physically healthy, but their uh, their mind is, is beginning to decay. Well, yeah, this is another condition that I, uh, I you know, I, I talk about in uh, in, the, in my book, Into the Gray Zone, because I think it is a gray zone state. When somebody starts to degenerate with Alzheimer's disease, and I'm guessing that almost everybody listening to this will, will now know somebody or know of somebody who uh, has this degenerative disease. These patients change fundamentally. They, their personalities change, their memories change, the whole way in which they interact with the outside world changes. And, and what becomes apparent is, uh, particularly at the later stages of the disease, is it's no longer clear whether they're here or not. And if they're here, what do we mean by that? What do we mean uh, by they're here? And if they're not here, what do we mean uh, you know, by that? And in that sense, it's a truly gray zone state that we judge the patients based on their behavior. What can they remember? What can they still do? Can they still dress themselves, wash themselves, so on and so forth? But what we've learned from these other gray zone states that we've been studying is that you, know, you can't judge a book by its cover. A person may have much more going on than is apparent from simply examining them clinically or, or, or looking at what behaviors they're still capable of doing. And I think this is an extremely interesting and, and, and important area that as we develop these techniques to become relevant to some of these other conditions that typically occur later in life, I think we may well find that some patients have capacities um, that we didn't previously imagine possible. And they may be, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that these patients are going to end up being able to do, you know, complex math and, and really, uh, you know, drive a car or, or design a bridge, but can they still experience enjoyment? Can they still derive pleasure from some of the things like listening to music, looking at art, watching movies? Um, can we get inside the heads of people in these situations and answer the, answer the big question, what is it like to be that? What is, it, what is it like to have Alzheimer's disease? Well, Adrian Owen, author of Into the Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. And the first one is, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life or gave you a new perspective into your world? I certainly can. 
2006, we were scanning a patient who had been involved in a road traffic accident. Uh, she had apparently been in a vegetative state for five months. Um, and uh, she she hadn't responded in any way to any form of external stimulation. As far as we were concerned, she was completely disconnected from the world. Now, that was the first time we ever put a patient into a scanner and, and asked them to activate their brain when we said do so. We said to her, imagine playing tennis. And the moment that we looked at her brain and it lit up, just when we said imagine playing tennis was, was really my eureka moment because this person went from being uh, you know, a body, a vegetative state patient in the scanner to being a real person again. At that, at that moment, I realized that this person was in there. They, they had a life. They were aware that they were in a scanner. They were aware of the situation that they were in. And that was, uh, there isn't another moment in my scientific career that can compete with that. Was that question, imagine playing tennis, an intentional question? It was. Uh, we'd spent many months developing that t technique up until that point in uh, healthy volunteers that had come into our scanner, and we tried many different questions to find the one that was most reliable. Uh, and it turns out that imagining playing tennis is a really great way of activating one particular area of the brain. Uh, so we knew what we wanted to do. But what was remarkable is this is the first time we'd ever tried it in a vegetative state patient. And my next question, Adrian Owen, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? Um, well, I'd like to continue in this area. I enjoy what I do very much. Um, I really enjoyed writing the book. This is the first time that I've written a story for a lay audience rather than a, a scientific audience. I've spent many, many years writing scientific papers about, about the science that we do. And I've, I, 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 looking back over 20 years, I realize there's a really interesting story here that I think many people will, will enjoy reading, will, will, will get something from. So writing science for the general public is something uh, that I'd, I'd like to do again and, and do more of, but also to continue alongside that by developing these techniques. Because even though it sounds as though, you know, I'm, I do this for the patients and for the families and, and so on and so forth, it's, it's also a scientific adventure. It's, it's exciting and interesting to be able to ask these really big scientific questions like, you know, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? What is consciousness? And I get to do all that stuff. And that, that's tremendously exciting. And that's something that I'd certainly like to continue doing for the rest of my life. Along with playing in your rock and roll band. Yes, well, that is something that I'd rather that that career also took off. That would also be a bonus if my if my music career were to take off and I could tour the world as a rock and roll star. I would truly die a happy man. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Um, I'm going to recommend a book that's actually rather old now, but it's the book that got me into science. It's by Richard Dawkins, uh, the British scientist, and it's a book called The Selfish Gene. And it's not necessarily because um, of the content of the book. It's because of the enthusiasm of the writing about the life of a scientist and about the pursuit of interesting scientific questions. I love the book. I've read it many times since. Um, and it's, it's far superior to any of his later work and on a completely different subject. But it's a really great sort of introduction to... The, why science is so exciting. Adrian Owen, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. 
Dr. Adrian Owen is the author of Into the Gray Zone. A neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. He's currently the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the Brain and Mind Institute of Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. The book Adrian Owen recommends is The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. This program was recorded on June 28, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. We appreciate your comments, ideas, and suggestions and like to hear from you. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Thomas Schoolcraft is our intern. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.